Oh, thanks. Well, good morning. Uh, yes, I, um, I owe Grace Evan a lot because uh, this church introduced me to my wife. And so I always will have fond memories of this church. And um, uh, Landon asked me to speak my first year at Memphis at their summer retreat down at the beach. And that's when I met Morgan, who was actually dating someone else at the time, but he lost. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, I did bring with me this morning uh, two of my interns, uh, Laura and Jack. They're both interns with me at Memphis. And Jack is married to Samira. And Samira is actually the intern at Rhodes. And so I know perhaps some of you might have students that are at Memphis or at Rhodes. And so if you are, um, you know, if you're parents of, of some students, you know, please come introduce yourself to me and to our interns afterwards. And if we can help serve your kids that are in college in Memphis, please, uh, that's what we're here for. And so if you're unfamiliar with what RUF is, uh, we are the campus ministry of the PCA. Um, those were those three letters that you were supposed to remember, where we have terrible music but good preaching. Um, just kidding. <laughs> that, that's really great. I, I think that's, that could be a wonderful advert for the PCA. Terrible music but wonderful preaching. Um, so the PCA um, is actually the denomination that your uh, senior minister is a part of. Dr. Jimmy Young is credentialed in the PCA. And so RUF is the campus ministry for the Presbyterian Church in America. And so we're on about 150 different colleges and campuses throughout the United States. And there's a lot I could say about RUF. Um, I was somewhat converted through RUF and... Um, my campus minister is a, is a name probably all are familiar with, Les Newsom, who's from Memphis, and um, I know his mother is on staff here, works here. And so RUF just has had a massive impact in my life. And um, one of the unique things about RUF is we send ordained campus ministers to a college campus. So it is our mission field, and we love to reach students for Jesus, and we love to equip them to serve the local church. And so... Um, we're the arm of the church on a college campus. So if you have any other questions about RUF or you would like to know, um, perhaps if you have a, a son or daughter at a particular college and you want to know if RUF is there, please come and, and, and talk to me. I would love to be able to connect your, your, your children uh, to our ministry. And so if there's anything we can do, please let us know. So I have, what, an hour? 30 minutes? 1033 or 4, okay. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to um, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. And if you are new, and perhaps this is your first time to church, um, and you've found yourself in this classroom, and you're maybe wondering where Revelation is, it's the very last book of the Bible. So just kind of turn towards the end, and, and you should find it. We're going to look at the, just the first 10 verses this morning, but before I read, I'm not sure how many of you are, you know, big news watchers, uh, if you kind of keep up with the latest headlines, but this last month, kind of just in the news in general, both in the United States and just globally, it's just been a really, it's been a rough month. I was in my office about three or four weeks ago, and, and I came across the story of Aylan Curdy. He was the uh, Syrian boy who washed up on the shores of a Turkish beach resort. 
And I don't know if you saw the picture, um, but it's a picture that it, it just hasn't left me, and it probably won't ever leave me. And it reminded me, as I read that story, it just reminded me that the world that we live in, it's just a really, really sad place at times. And then I came across the story of Ashley Madison and the 37 million users who've been allured by Ashley Madison's tagline, life is short, have an affair. And again, it was just a reminder that the world that we live in, it, it, it's just really broken by sin. And it can just be a really evil place. And then there was a story I read about the New York City police commissioner who, when he was hired a couple of years ago, he was quoted as saying that his main job was to solve police departments' race problems because he thought that that was the issue of our times for people who have been over-policed and under-protected. And again, just this last week, there was another police officer shooting another unarmed African-American. Now, that's not any sort of political statement. That's not any, meant to be anything against our police and firemen and those government officials. But it is a reminder that the world in which we live in is just really messed up relationally. <laughs> There's just dysfunction and chaos scattered throughout this world in our horizontal relationships. And there's a temptation on the one hand to read those headlines and to read those stories and to think that all the evil, all the brokenness, all that is sinful, it's just out there. Like it wouldn't ever come into a place as pristine as Grace Evangelical Church. Like there's a temptation to actually believe that. But here's the reality. I know that for many of you, you know what it feels like to lose a child. And the heartache is real. I, I know that you this morning perhaps have walked the difficult road of adultery and sexual sin. And you know what it feels like. I know that some of you in here this morning, you know what it feels like to be bullied to be discriminated against. And that reality, it's just really palpable for you this morning. And so there's a temptation to believe that it's out there, but it actually, it's right here. It's right inside me. And so the question is, is what do we do? Like, what do we do with all the brokenness, all the sin, all the evil, everything that is wrong with this world? How do we deal with it? And when I started asking myself that question, I came across another story. And it said, and, and the tagline or the, the headline read this, why evangelicals support Donald Trump. And I was like, oh, I'm reminded that we are right now full on in political season. And we are going to be inundated with promises by candidates and politicians who are going to say that they have the resources to fix what is wrong with this world. Like you're going to be inundated and I'm going to be inundated with campaigns of 
politicians and candidates who are going to say that they have what it takes to restore all that's been lost. And then I read Revelation 19. And I was reminded that there's really only one promise that we can actually trust with absolute confidence because it comes from the only person who can actually deliver on that promise. And it's the one who actually conquered sin and death. And his name is Jesus. Revelation 19 is a promise that Christians have clung to for 2,000 years because it's a promise that encourages us to enable and to, uh, it, to, to strengthen and to sustain us while we go through this broken and fallen world. Revelation 19 is a promise that has enabled Christians to endure living in, in this broken and fallen world. This text is for tired, exhausted, broken, bruised, yet incredibly hopeful people. So if you'd give your attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle John says this, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is God's word. Let's pray before we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, for your kindness. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that you have preserved for us your word, which is true. Your word, which shows us what kind of a God you are, shows us what kind of, of people we are. And so we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would take your word, and you would show us yet again just how beautiful and believable Jesus is, and at the same time, you would show us how much we desperately need him. So would you do those things for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I know Revelation, um, some of you might be familiar with, some of you might not be familiar with it. And so the question this morning is this, why do we need to hear Revelation 19? Like, what's the point behind it? If you know anything about it, the Apostle John wrote Revelation, and he wrote this letter. It's a long letter, and he wrote it to seven different congregations that were just kind of scattered throughout Asia Minor. Seven real congregations full of real believing Christians, young and old. And John writes this letter to these Christians to encourage and strengthen them. Because these Christians in these seven churches were actually undergoing horrific persecution and suffering. So if you were a Christian in one of these congregations... He would have lived under just the oppression of the Roman Empire, who at that time was saying, if you didn't bow the knee to Caesar and call him Lord, the likelihood is you might be decapitated. You might have been thrown to wild beasts in in an arena full of spectators. You might have been tortured to death. And so John writes Revelation to encourage and strengthen Christians. That's what the whole letter is about. And so the question is this, is what what happens when following Jesus actually makes my life more difficult? How do we we deal with that? Because here's the reality. I know that some of you are going to have family members. You're going to have friends. You're going to have coworkers who are not going to believe the things that you believe concerning Jesus. Like you're going to rub up against people who are not going to believe and see what you see in the scriptures. And you're going to run up against people who are going to make you feel like you're on the outside. That what you believe to be true is actually intolerant, full of bigotry, it's full of hate. It's, you're going to be made to feel like you're on the outside. And so the question this morning is this, is what happens when that reality is true for us? Like, what's the solution Why is it worth it in the end to continue to follow Jesus? And what John is going to say, he's going to say the reason why it's worth it is because of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's why it's going to be worth it in the end is because of the wedding feast of the Lamb. The Bible has a lot of different metaphors for the the reality of heaven, but one of the dominant metaphors is this idea of a bridegroom searching out for his bride, and then this massive wedding at the end. In, in some ways, this dominant theme of, of heaven being really a wedding feast is what Scripture kind of just really, from the Old and the New Testament, just constantly pushes. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at two things. I want to look at the feast of the wedding, and then I want to look at the bridegroom of the wedding. So first... What do we learn about the feast of the wedding? Revelation 19, if, if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, what you're getting a picture of is what is going to be true of you one day. And heaven, when John sees what he sees, heaven just erupts at the thought of this wedding feast and it, its actual reality. So what does heaven see that makes them erupt that we actually need to see this morning? And the first is this. The first thing we need to understand about the wedding feast is that this party, it's never going to end. 
Like the wedding feast of the lamb is a party that will never end. The wine will never run out at this party. John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the Gospel of John. And if you remember in the Gospel of John, he he records Jesus' very first miracle. And it was at a wedding, a wedding at Cana. And Jesus' first recorded miracle, John records, said when he did this, it manifested the glory of God. And what was it? All of the wine was running out at this wedding party. And Jesus turns water into wine. And when he did that, John says, that manifested God's glory. And it shocked like the master of the feast who was there. He actually went up to Jesus and he said, look, at your party, for some reason, like when, when the, we, we serve the very best wine on the front end, and then we give the bad stuff at the end when everybody's drunk freely. He goes, but you... You've waited to give the very best at the end. And he was shocked by it. And John says, what Jesus did actually manifested his glory. So what are, what are we getting a picture of? And here's what I want to suggest to you. What we're getting a picture of is a foretaste of what Jesus is really like. Jesus is all about healing our deep satisfaction and hunger. The feast that Jesus brings at his wedding is a feast that will never run out, where the party is never going to end. So what does this mean? Well, it means on the one hand that you can stop looking at these little feasts in the here and now to actually satisfy what only that feast will do. You can stop looking at the little feast in this life to satisfy what only that feast will do. Perhaps you think that having just a little bit more money might actually give you the security that you actually are looking for. But how much money do you actually need to get the security that you actually think is going to protect you? Just, is it one more dollar? Is it one more dollar? Is it one more dollar? Or perhaps it's comfort. Like, how much comfort do you need to actually experience true contentment? Or perhaps the feast that you run to is the attempt to get everyone to like you. Like, I live or die by the opinion of an 18-year-old. That's how pathetic I am. Or the feast to prove that you actually have self-worth, that you validate your existence by what you do. What John is showing us is the only feast that will ultimately satisfy that deep, deep hunger is the wedding feast. But it also means this. John constantly exhorts Christians in Revelation to overcome, to endure. If the wedding feast is the only feast that will actually satisfy us, then what it means is that singleness is not going to be the death of you. And what I mean by that is this, marriage, even a healthy earthly marriage was never meant to be the thing that actually satisfies you and bring contentment. So that means that singleness, you can actually live singly and be okay. 
It means that if you don't get your dream job or that promotion and you actually have to stay in that department that is mundane and boring, it means that you're going to be okay. It means that you can actually live in a really hard marriage. You can remain faithful and you can work tirelessly at it and you can still be okay. Because the wedding feast is the only feast where that is going to bring unending joy and satisfaction and contentment. John says the wedding feast, it's the feast that's never gonna run out. The wine will never end. The party goes on forever. That's the first thing. But what do we learn about the bridegroom? Revelation 19 is actually a culmination of a love story that began way back in Genesis. And it's a love story that you nor I would actually ever consider writing. Because it's a love story about a bridegroom who is perfect and beautiful and lovely. And he sets his affection on a bride who is ugly imperfect, unrighteous, and the scriptures actually call her over and over and over again a whore, a prostitute, an adulterer. And yet what you have throughout the scriptures is this love story about a bridegroom who is constantly pursuing a bride who is always unfaithful to him. So what do we learn about the bridegroom this morning from Revelation 19? And the first thing that I want you to see is that the bridegroom on his wedding day, he shows up. He arrives. And that may not land the way that it does with me, but I know for a fact that I have given Jesus every reason not to show up on his wedding day because I have been unfaithful time and time again. I have not followed him the way in which that I should have. I have not done the things that he has asked me to do. I have neglected the things that I should be doing. And yet, John gives us this wonderful picture in Revelation 19 that Jesus shows up on his wedding day. (laughs) He is not late. He does not get cold feet as he sees the bride walking down the aisle. He is not disappointed. And that should be really encouraging for us this morning. But look again at at verse 10. The angel has just announced to John that the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. The, the, The day of the wedding is there. And did you notice what John does? He falls down and worships an angel right in front of the bridegroom. Like John literally commits adultery right in front of the bridegroom on his wedding day. This is like the bride going over to the best man and kissing him right in front of the groom on their wedding day. And yet, Jesus on his wedding day, he shows up because he has come to marry messed up, broken, sinful people and make them his bride. He shows up when spouses have fought their way to church. 
He shows up when parents have just been irritated and impatient with their kids and actually have thought about dropping them off on the corner and never returning for them. He shows up for when we have lied at work or cheated on our income taxes. He shows up when we've been addicted to things and perhaps even have committed adultery on our spouse. Why? Because even when Jesus sees us at our very worst, he loves us despite it. The first thing we learn about the bridegroom is that he shows up. That's the beauty of the gospel love story is that even though we as the bride of Christ have given him every reason not to show up, he still shows up to marry us. The second thing that we see is that the bridegroom, he actually beautifies the bride. Look again at verses seven and eight. Jesus takes all that is impure all that is ugly, all that is shameful, all that is disgraceful. And John tells us Jesus actually covers it. He gives the bride something that she doesn't have, a garment, a wedding garment. And look at what the wedding garment is. Verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, what does this mean? In some ways, it sounds kind of problematic. But throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, God is always the one who clothes his people with what they do not have or what they cannot achieve on their own. This is just a complete, I mean, that's the Old and New Testament reality, that God always gives his people what they need in order to stand in his presence and live. And it's no different here. If you remember Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he constantly says that we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to actually make God love us. I can't keep the law because I fail. I can't believe hard enough because I can't. But yet Paul says, no, we are saved by grace through faith. And that's actually given to us by Jesus and then he goes on to say that the, that the righteous deeds of the saints are what? They've been prepared beforehand by who? By God for us to walk in. And so I want you to see the consistency that John is just picking up here in Revelation 19. But in Revelation 21, John is actually going to say that the bride of Christ actually looks like Jasper. And that phrase has appeared elsewhere in Revelation Revelation chapter 4, John says that God looks like Jasper. What are you getting a picture of? What we're getting a picture of is that Jesus always beautifies his bride with his own radiance and his own glory and his own righteousness. That has always been the case, that Jesus gives us what we need in order to be beautiful. I don't know if you've ever come across a book entitled um, Letters to an Unborn Child. It was written by a guy named David Ireland. David Ireland was dying of a neurological disease when he discovered that his wife was pregnant. And he knew by the time that his child arrived, he probably wouldn't be there because this disease was just crippling him. 
And at a certain point, I mean, he was actually in a wheelchair um, when, the, when the disease was discovered. And so he decided to write letters to his unborn child. And there's one chapter where he's, he's writing to his unborn child about his mother, about the child's mother, about his wife. And this is what he, 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 he says. He says, your mother is very special. Few men know what it is like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm, un- so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes, locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal And when it is over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. I've read this story about a thousand times. I know how it ends. And when it is all over and finished with real warmth, she looks at me and she says, honey, thank you for taking me out on a date. Folks, that is a picture of what Jesus does for his bride. We are beautiful and dressed for our wedding day only because of him. And what I want you to hear this morning is this, that Jesus comes to every part of our life where there is shame, where there is sin, where there is embarrassment, where there is disgrace. And he beautifies you. And then he stands back and he goes, wow. I have only ever had eyes for you. You're the most beautiful bride I have ever seen. Jesus always looks at his bride, as my good friend Les Newsom said, with honeymoon affection. The bridegroom, he arrives, he shows up, but he comes bearing a wedding gift and he beautifies her. But lastly, the lamb protects. The first part of Revelation 19, heaven erupts at the destruction of Babylon. We don't have time to actually look at it, but real quickly, this goes back to Genesis, the story of Babel where the people of God decided to do life without God. And so God judged them. And so Babylon has always been just kind of this metaphor for people who decide to do life on their own without God. And heaven erupts at the destruction of Babylon. So what are are we getting a picture of? And here's what I want you to understand is that Jesus on his wedding day is not going to allow anything or anyone to destroy his most special day. There's going to be no more evil, no more heartache, no more sadness, no more of what's broken is going to interfere with Jesus's 
most important day. And that is when he gets to spend his life with his bride. In other words, evil has to go. Babylon has to go. And I know the the language is graphic in Revelation 19, and I don't know how that lands with you, the destruction of Babylon. But here's the thing. I don't think anyone in here would ever invite, say, you know, that uncle who you know if he shows up to your daughter's wedding or your son's wedding has the potential to really destroy it or an abusive parent. Like you would never invite someone to your wedding day who could potentially destroy that day. Why would it be any different with Jesus? He's not going to allow anything to come between him and his bride. Evil, sadness, heartache, it has to go. The bridegroom, he shows up to marry an imperfect, messed up, broken bride. He shows up to protect her. He shows up to love her for the rest of eternity. What Revelation 19 is showing us is that God really does want to spend time with you. He actually really does love you. If that wasn't the case, then verse 9 makes absolutely no sense. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. How have the people of God been able to endure and suffer and overcome the brokenness and messiness and sinfulness of this world? It's because the invitation of the wedding supper of the Lamb is real. It's true. You are invited this morning to the marriage feast, a feast that will never end. And you're invited to spend eternity in the arms of the one who has loved you before the foundations of the world. Folks, that's an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we we recognize even now that the good news, it almost seems too good to be true. That you would take wandering, sinful, unfaithful, broken people and you would make them your treasured possession. You would make them a gift for your son on his wedding day. But we thank you that the good news, it actually is true. And so we pray this morning that you would take that good news yet again and you would drive it deep into our souls so that we might believe it a little bit more today than we did yesterday so that it might actually transform our commitment to you better than it was yesterday. May we find Jesus beautiful and radiant and marvelous yet again. And perhaps even for the first time, would you do that for us? We can only pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, would you want your college kids to have a steady diet of that? Thanks so much. Thank you.
helpful and true. Thanks so much. Thank you.